This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. There isn't an architect walking the planet that questioned whether or not they were making the right decision when they decided to become an architect, which leads us to today's topic of making an architect. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to try to answer the question, do you have what it takes to be an architect? Which, I'll admit, is a pretty loose premise, but it doesn't stop people from asking that question to me a few times every single week. In my opinion, this is almost an existential question, and the people who are generally asking it are at an age when they shouldn't be faced with existential questions. But if you're not going to ask that question when you're young, when would you ask a question like that? In these emails, the questions are almost always the same. They want to know if they're going to be good at being an architect before they make any fairly large career course corrections. Right? They're asking me, hey, Bob, this is my whole life history. From this, can you discern whether or not I would make a successful architect? Like, is this something that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy? Which is impossible. Magic. Yeah, it's impossible for me to answer that question. Yeah, magic eight ball Bob. Please tell me if this is going to be good for my life. Shake here. Ask me again later. <laughs> well, I don't have that crystal ball or the magic eight ball. And while most people seem to think that their circumstances are unique, they're typically not. So there's not really a whole lot that I can tell these people that's going to, one, I don't want the responsibility saying, yeah, absolutely, you're going to be amazing. And then they say, well, I'm dropping out of engineering school and I'm going to go this route. And in two years they go, I hate it. It's the worst thing ever. It's too stressful. I don't ever see my friends anymore. You know, whatever the excuses may be. I hate you, Bob, for doing this to me. <laughs> you know, actually, I've never gotten one of those emails, but I have gotten a number that said, thanks for the encouraging words. Actually, I got one just the other day. They said that they were one semester away from graduating and they wanted to thank me for giving them some encouragement like four years ago. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. It's that's pretty, a good thing. It's pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. So when I first started getting these questions, it was a long, long, long time ago. And I actually wrote a post about intelligence quota. Like what kind of IQ does someone need to have in order to be an architect? And I think if we're going to answer this question, the vast majority of what we're going to talk about are a little esoteric. Like there are little nuances within the different types of jobs you might have if you were an architect. But just right out of the gate, and this, I don't know a better way to put it, but do you have the mental chops to do what most architects do day in and day out? Yeah, we got to be pretty smart. Yeah, it's but it's also kind of self-congratulatory to say, hey, you want to do what I do? You have to be a brilliant person, which kind of means I just said I was brilliant, which... Yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, so this this is not going down the way I want it to, but I don't know how to... I want to get past this first part <laughs> as soon as possible because <laughs> it's uncomfortable. Without seeming completely arrogant. I mean, I know it's hard for me with my 198 IQ, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, 198. I actually, I, you know, I know this is not the order I was going to ask you, but have you ever actually taken an IQ test? Not one online, yeah. not like a real one. Yeah, I have actually when I was younger. Because you're eating dirt? In your, no, in your yeah, parents. no, yeah, yeah, that's it. It was in the kindergarten. My parents were like, he keeps running into stuff. We need to test his IQ. So what was the, so what was the premise? Cause you're a little bit younger than I am, but not a whole lot. And, and I'll tell you, I, I had my IQ tested like a million times when I was a little kid and not because I eat dirt, but because my mom was a school teacher and a bunch of her teaching friends were going after diagnostician licenses. And part of that education that they went through means they had to practice 
administering certain types of tests. So every summer, me and my two sisters were guinea pigs for all my mom's <laughs> friends. So like once or twice a year, I got my IQ tested. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, my parents were teachers too, so that's kind of where when most of mine was done when I was younger. I mean, don't get me wrong; I've taken a billion of the online ones in my early twenties because I was curious, and I was. And they tell you you should be in Hufflepuff. And I was getting, to, no, <laughs> you know, I was always trying to get into the Menza stuff and that kind of junk, which is why I was always trying to take those things. So, okay, let's get into it. Let me just get this bit out of the way. So let's start with the concept of measuring the IQ of an individual. I'm going to drop some history on you here. So, oh, okay. I know, you know, I do my research. The concept of measuring the IQ of an individual is credited to either German psychologist and philosopher Wilhelm Stern or in around 1912 or to Lewis Terman around 1916. I've found various sources on this and they don't always agree, but this generally kind of seems to consensus that it kind of comes down to these two dudes. Well, it's around the same, give or take the same time period. So but here's what's interesting. So prior to that time, to the, the 1912, 1916 range, there was a, a psychologist, a guy named Alfred Binet, who did large scale testing in 1904 as part of a commission by the French government to create a system that differentiated intellectually normal children from those who were inferior, which seems really harsh, but that's, I mean, nice. that's what it says. That was the goal. Inferior so, French children. Inferior children. Yeah. So Alfred Binet created what is known as the Binet scale, which is still one of the major scales that's put in place. And sometimes later, Dr. Terman, the guy who was in 1916, the one who's, who was brought in, he revised that scale to become the Simon Binet IQ scale. And that's the scale that probably most people are familiar with because it has the classical kind of scale parameters that people are familiar with, which are if your IQ is over 140, your genius or almost genius level IQ intelligence. Yeah. Does it have a top out? I, I, that's something I don't ever, I've never known. No. Other tests measure up to, and they're not really sure how to get higher. Like I've seen tests where they predict, they say probably in the 160 range, that kind of thing. Huh. But really the categories, they kind of say, hey, baseline is 100. Above 100, you're, you're above the standard that is the bar for everyone to clear. And if you're below 100, you're below the standard that we've identified. Over 140, it's genius or almost genius. 120 uh -huh. to 140 falls into the very superior intelligence range. 110 to 119 superior, 90 to 109 is kind of the bracket for average or normal intelligence. 80 to 89 is dullness, which seems... <laughs> <laughs> like that's really what it says? It's yeah, dull, dullness. Dullness. Oh, dullness. Wow. Ouch. 70 to 79 is borderline deficiency in intelligence, and then under 70 is considered feeble-mindedness. Wow. So using those brackets of scores, you can find lists of typical IQ scores by profession on the internet in lots of different places. But I'm not going to vouch for those. I mean, I don't know what makes them credible or not credible. But the part that is most interesting to me is how these scores can be used to measure the relative capabilities of the individual in a real world environment. Meaning, what kind of job would you be capable of as the most valid predictor of future performance based on your general mental ability. So it's it's the premise that if you want to be, I don't know, let's say a physicist, if your IQ doesn't exist within a certain bracket, 
this suggests that no matter how hard you try, your brain doesn't have the capacity to function at the level needed to perform that role. You might not be able to do it. If you've got an 80, if you get an 80 on this test and you want to be a work for NASA, could be a hard thing. And you can't, no amount of studying is going to give you the capabilities to overcome this hand you've been dealt, okay? Yeah. Obviously, there's there's other moving parts to this, but in the context of how I am presenting it here is that the intent of measuring one's IQ to determine capability and capacity is not unreasonable. It's been in place for 120 years or so. But the flip side assumes that no amount of effort or preparation will allow someone with, say, an 110 IQ to work a job that typically requires the capacity of that brain measuring something higher. Okay? Yeah. I think we, I got you. we can agree on that. Yeah, yeah. So the list that I found that I'm just going to use, I'll just bracket them out really quickly. For the kind of jobs that they've identified that you need to have a genius or near genius level IQ is like top civil servants. To this, they probably mean politicians, you know, people that have to, which <laughs> I'm not, is sure, I'm not of, sure I agree with that, but okay. Yeah. Or, or maybe you could say judges, you know, if you want to be in the Supreme Court, you probably need to be up in this category. Maybe so. Professors, scientists, editors, that type of thing. And I will say, because my wife and I were talking about this just earlier today, that most of these tests, while they have visual aspects to them, a lot of these scales are determined by your mastery of vocabulary and usage. So it kind of discounts some of the scientific trades that might be out there. You know, the yeah, idea is I got you. I'm a physicist, but I might not have the world's largest vocabulary. Well, yeah. that's part of how they determine what these scores are, that's a giant grain of salt, like a deer lake sized grain of salt. Yeah, for sure. That people need to take in consideration. These are not like if somebody said, I want to do this and they take the test and they're like, oh, it says I need to be 130 for an architect and I'm only 125. Go for it. Yeah. Right? Well, I would even say 120 or whatever. I mean, because again, it's it's a standardized test and it's not quite, I think, appropriate in a way. But but the problem is, is or not the problem, the circumstances is that it's been in place and functioning for over 120 years. So there's a lot of data that supports some of these assumptions. While we this might say that's not necessarily correct, 120 years of actually of actual saying, here's what the science tells us and we can watch and see how that bears out. It hasn't changed much, which tells you that the data supports the assumptions to a certain extent. Yeah. And I would say that, so. cert that certain extent is beyond a bare minimum. Yeah. No, I, I see There's what you're exceptions. Saying. There's exceptions to, to, every, to every rule. rule, for sure. But the boundaries that we're working in are not absurd. Yeah, uh, probably. So architects fall into a line, like they say, 130, which includes surgeons, lawyers, architects, and engineers, which I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And then and it goes down for a while. Generally, 120 is school teachers, pharmacists, accountants, nurses, managers. Uh, 110 they had is foremen, clerks, salesmen, police officers, electricians. I don't know why electricians got stuck in this because out of all the trades I see at my job site, electricity is the one that I go, I kill myself the fastest that way. <laughs> yeah, I feel like sometimes they may need to be up in that 140 range to be doing some of the wiring uh -huh. that I've seen. Well, on this list, it's it's kind of funny. They don't put a lot of, like, there's no, like, electricians made the list, but plumbers aren't on this list. Yeah. Nora is like, you know, framing, framing is not on this list. Tile, and those things are not on this list. Yeah, that's not a lot not of trades of this on this list. list. Yeah. But they did put welders on here and butchers. Welders and butchers are in the same category, <laughs> which 
Again, now this is not saying that if you are a welder, for instance, that this is what your IQ is. None of that matters. You could be a genius level intellect and want to be a welder. Yeah, right? for sure. This is your IQ is not telling you that you can't be something else based on what it is. It's saying that you might not have the tools to be some other things based on what your IQ might be. Yeah. Okay. Or that if you're again, if your IQ is beyond that, that you can't find happiness doing something else. Well, all that having been said, having a high IQ doesn't mean all that much to the unmotivated individual. Very true. Right. Success is relative and not an indicator of happiness, unless, of course, you are only measuring it against failure or as it relates to our conversation today. Do you have the mental capacity to become an architect? I can say, let's take that off the board so that everybody who hasn't hasn't punted out of this episode at this point already five minutes in. <laughs> yeah, that they've already conceded. Yes, I believe I have the mental chops to go on to the next phase of this topic, this uh, next phase of this discussion. And, and I'm certain everyone that's listening is well beyond that. We have a smart audience. Genius level. Like Genius level. So let's assume that everyone who is still on board has an intelligence to go through what I would say is a fairly exhaustive and rigorous process that's required with actually becoming an architect. Yeah. Part of the evidence that this process is difficult to complete, meaning the process of be actually becoming an architect, is purely based on just how few people actually achieve their license to practice architecture, at least in the United States. Yeah, I gotcha. So I, I did a little more research. I went on to National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, or NCARB. NCARB. Yep. Yeah, NCARB, NCARB as I like to call it. Yeah. And according to the 2017 survey of architectural registration boards, the number of architects licensed in the United States rose to an all-time high in 2017 and that number is 113,554 that's all-time high yeah and that's really still not very many if you think about the total population of the u.s to put in perspective i'm going to say lawyers since they're on the same bandwidth according to the iq chart uh-huh in the same time frame there were 1.34 million lawyers to 113,000 licensed architects that is insane. And here, this gets crazier. So there are, 2017, there were 5,200 newly licensed architects. Just people who passed the test. People who passed the test in 5,200, 2017. That same number for attorneys was 34,000. Yeah, that's so pretty crazy. think about it. In, in four years, they lap us. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, four years. That's crazy. But we know... It, which is not today's topic, but we know the actual process to become a licensed architect is one of the more difficult out of all licensed professions. The amount of undergraduate work or graduate degree coursework, real experience, testing, the number of tests, the number of hours we're in tests, it's a rigorous process and it's not for the casual, I think I want to be an architect type person. It takes some commitment for sure. Which shows up on one of the lists as if you want to be an architect, one of the characteristics I think that you need to have is a dedication to the craft. But we'll get to that later because one of the things that I thought would be interesting, because I've actually talked about this on the site, not this linear, like not this specific topic, but in certain kind of ways. And so there's this one thing that I kind of dug out that I thought was interesting. Back in 2014, I was one of the speakers at the AIA Colorado Practice and Design Conference, which was a great conference, by the way. And I was able to catch 
a presentation from Tom Main. He was the last keynote speaker. So he came on after I did. So oh, you, you opened for him. Nice. You're an opener. I warmed it up. Sweet. So Tom Main came out and he said something that literally blew my mind up. This isn't a direct quote because I wasn't recording the presentation, but the short version is basically that Tom said that he will always address the client's programming requirements, but the aesthetics of the project are off the table. Essentially, why should he listen to them? They know nothing <laughs> about aesthetics. Bold. Which, that's pretty ballsy. That is right? bold, my friend. I suppose if you're a Pritzker Prize winning architect and a gold medal winner, all these things, that you get to make comments like that and your clients will just politely nod and say, yes, whatever you want. But yeah. my takeaway was, wow, I must really, I must suck because <laughs> it has literally never occurred to me that my clients wouldn't get a say in how their project looks. Yeah, that's... It still makes my head explode. Yeah, but I think, in a way, the work that you do is much more personal, at least a majority of it, right, for housing and whatnot. Even still, that's a... Man, that's a lot of large ego, I think, it, it to is. say that, well, you right? Know, I, he can back it up. He can. Yeah. But there's not that many architects that are in his position to be able to make a statement like that and actually be able to walk that walk. Sure. But after I heard that, I sat down and I actually said, I thought to myself that I would come up with a list of what makes someone great at what they do. Like, if you're going to be great, what do you need to have? What makes that? What makes you Tom Main? Yeah. So this isn't necessarily specific to being an architect. These qualities could fit for really any profession, any service profession for sure. But I think that they are important if you want to have success as an architect. They can be other things as well. They're not just architects. But I think they're important. So so my five, and I'll just read them out here. First one is they must take their work seriously and consistently perform on the highest level. For sure. Reasonable. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the small caveat to that is defining what the highest level means for each profession or for you personally. I think it's got to be you personally, don't you? I mean, yeah, in a way, I think so. But again, I think it still has to be within your profession. I mean, because I could perform at my highest level and it still might not be the best that it could be. Right. It's the highest level for you, yeah. but not for other people that do what you do. Yeah, I think. Maybe. <laughs> There's so many jokes in there. I'm going to leave it alone. Though. I know. Thanks. Well, you know, I have to. They constantly aspire to improve their skills. That, yeah, that's a, that's sure. another way of saying you don't rest on your laurels. Yeah, that one's 100% sure. I see that actually way too often. People re reach a certain level of, of success and they get really complacent. They just They just kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again. Especially, I think, when it comes to trying to learn new things or do new things, I think that's the biggest one I see a lot in folks that becomes detrimental over time. And actually pretty quick, right? When you decide, I know everything I need to know, I'm going to stop learning stuff. I mean, I, I personally have don't know anybody like that. Mm. I mean, I don't know people like that, like know them. I see them. I can see mm. it happen. But definitely, you got to keep improving. Well, you know, that's what, just as a sidebar. My site, lifeofanarchitect.com, was started really as a result of me trying to improve my skill set. I never really talked about it, but one of my, and you're going to laugh because this is so stupid because I've failed so miserably at it. But one <laughs> of my objectives, like I think most people would say, life of an architect, smash success. Nobody saw that coming, particularly me. But one of the things that jumps out is I thought, hey, here'll be an opportunity for me to practice on my communication skills and see if I can't learn how to. I don't know, make my point in fewer words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it worked out real well. 
real well. I haven't been able to do it. And yeah. anything, if anything, I've become more verbose. Yeah, exactly. You've, you can prattle on for even longer now. I've failed miserably. This yeah. has been like a <laughs> miserable, not successful at all. But I'm aware of it. So even though it's kind of noodles me in the back of my brain is like, okay, you're you're heading in the opposite direction. It's still there. I yeah. still want it's a skill set I still am working towards. I just haven't done very good at getting there. <laughs> so third one on my list was to demonstrate consistency in their delivery and in their product. Okay, so what does that mean to you? Well, to me, that means that when people want something from me, they have an idea of what they can expect and that they get the thing that they were expecting. That one's really about quality in a way. Yeah, because consistency in the delivery is not I'm giving you the same product over and over again. It's that architecture is a deliverable item. So the act of me going through the steps of that process and doing the drawings and sending them out for permit or giving to the contractor to build, Yeah, that I don't have wild fluctuations in like, is this a good set of drawings or a bad set of drawings? Has my communication coordination with my subs, is it has it been good on this project, but it was terrible on that project? It almost suggests that you have either internally or written down firm, like a cultural thing, that there's a methodology to your process and you're able to put that methodology in place so that you can monitor what works and what doesn't work so you can make the necessary adjustments to make things better. And I agree. I think it's definitely about quality and consistent, or maybe consistency in your quality to deliver your services. Yes. Every time you do a good job or a great job, a consistent job, and you, like you say, always have a really great set of drawings, you always provide good service. There's different different venues of that within the profession even. Of course, these are, you have to internalize all this because what my standards, like, for instance, in my own office, if if it's a Bob project, the drawings come out differently than if it was somebody else running that job. Yeah. Because I have, I have my own things that are important. I go, this is, we can't blow these items. These are important. And so the quality control of my projects, I'd like to say is high. That's not to say they're not if you hire someone else in my office. But my process is unique to me because I'm the one doing it. And then it trickles down through the people who work with me on my projects. We haven't reached the point to where my standard is the office standard, but we're heading that direction. Because Mm -hmm. as I work with different people in my office, I change their game. And that sounds like, you know, oh, I just hurt myself slapping myself on the back. I do such a great job. That was a very Tom Maness comment. But yeah, okay. You know what? I stand by it. There's a lot of things. I'm not good at taking compliments unless I give them to myself. <laughs> I hear you. Okay. Those are the All best right, kinds. moving on. Yeah. Those are the best kinds. Because they, they're from the heart. I That's know right. I mean them. I know. They, they, <laughs> I they know mean that the most. when I say, I know that when I say I'm amazing, I really mean I it. I really mean it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Number four on that list was they are impatient, frequently better leaders than collaborators. And I'm not sure about that one. That's the one that gives me a little heartburn. Well, you know why I think this is? Mm. Okay, maybe maybe I can see dropping the impatient part. Let's focus on the last part. They're frequently better leaders than collaborators. And that's because, in my opinion, if you're working towards success, you have to elevate the people that are around you. So that tells me that you really have to be in some sort of leadership position so that rising tide lifts all boat. If it's just you, if you're just the one person that's saying... I'm going to make a difference and everyone else around you is oblivious to the standard that you are trying to set, you won't be successful. You have to take whatever game that you're bringing to the mix 
and somehow get everybody to get to be that level, assuming that your level's higher than everybody else. To me, the part of it is that you really, you have to be a leader or you're a better leader, but I think that you're also really good at collaboration because you can lead people to do better. I feel like, especially in our industry, right, collaboration is really important. And I think that you've got to be a good collaborator. But to me, that that's that's similar as a leader, right? I mean, it's a, I don't know. I'll give you that. Right? I'll give you that. Because I, I think that we're kind of looking at it in different contexts. And I might have blinders on to a certain extent just from the fact that I primarily worked in really small offices. Yeah. So I don't have humongous teams. I have too. I mean, I'm sure. But, you know, I just... I don't know. It, the Because I really, I guess to me, part of what I want to do is to be a really good collaborator. Even as the leader of the team, I still want to be able to collaborate with people really well. And I think that makes the overall process better. And again, goes back to raising all boats. Yeah, but I'm not saying you're either a good collaborator or a good leader. I'm saying that leadership qualities are more important than your ability to be a good collaborator. Because the the fact that you're in the leadership role means that you're not boots on the ground in the same way that the other people on the team might be. So you need to relinquish some of this maniacal, that thing that architects are famous for, for micromanaging all the people that are on the team and empower them to do their jobs the way that they see fit. And if you can't remove yourself from that process, then I, I think that that's actually more damaging. I think if you had to choose between the two, and I'm, that's kind of the premise that I'm putting out there now is that between the idea of a silo as a leader and a silo as a collaborator, because ideally you're like, I'm amazing at both. <laughs> I'm saying it's more important to be a better leader than it is to be a good collaborator. Because my premise is you're not collaborating because you're empowering that to other people. Okay. But are you just, I guess when you're talking about collaboration, are you talking about people that you work, that work for you? I'm thinking about, for example, my engineers, or even at the professional level, other people that I deal with in TXA and things like that, right? Those are people that I want to be a collaborator with, not necessarily, I mean, I want to lead, but I want to be able to collaborate with those people in a way that comes from a leadership quality, right? But you still want to be able to do it and do it well. Well, that's why I say better leader than collaborator, not a good leader and a bad collaborator. Okay. You're not sacrificing one for the other. Okay. But if I say on a one to 10, I want 10 to be leadership and I want collaborator to be something less than 10. Less I'm than okay 10. with that. Uh, okay. All right. The other thing about that one for me is hard about um, the old saying, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room kind of thing. <laughs> but leadership doesn't suggest intelligence. No, this is true. It almost suggests that your skill is knowing to get out of the way yeah. at the right times. Maybe so. All right. We could do an episode on leadership. Because part of the way I look at it, I want to say, hey, this is this is the goal, right? So it really comes down to, I look at collaborators as task-oriented. Like, you measure your ability to be a good collaborator based on tasks. Mm. And you measure your ability to be a good leader based on goals. Interesting. Okay. They're not in the same silo. For you. So that's why I'm kind of saying, yeah, well, I think for most people. Doesn't mm. mean that you can't do both. You can exist mm. in both silos. But... I think when I say I'm collaborating with my engineers, for instance, mm -hmm. in that capacity, I've moved myself out of the leadership silo. I'm, I'm actually worker silo at that point, and my collaboration is important. But I think that to get where I think most architects really want to be is they want to be in the goal silo, not the task silo. All right. I'm willing to concede that that's not for everybody. The separation is what I have, I'm having the most 
difficulty with. I mean, okay, to, I get that. To me, they're really hard to separate leadership and collaboration because I don't view collaboration as a task-oriented thing like you do. So maybe it's just our different perspective on that. But I agree with you that uh, we're definitely want to be the person that's leading things. Okay, maybe that's a better way to look at it. That you you want to have that, like if we're talking about what makes an architect, part of it is that desires to step out in front of the row and say. I have an idea, and this is what I think we should do. Yeah. Number five, they are passionate about what they do, motivated by improving themselves rather than monetary gains. And I, when I wrote that, I will tell you that it seemed so obvious to me when I wrote it. But I'm not so sure that it's really right in the same way that I don't think it's wrong either. Yeah, I get you. And it, it's difficult statement. I mean, I think the first half is very easy, right? They're passionate about what they do. I think every person... As evidenced by the fact that you and I are both sitting in our respective closets. Closets, yeah. On a Sunday afternoon, recording a podcast to talk about architecture. Yes, exactly. So passionate. That doesn't demonstrate some passion. It demonstrates stupidity. Some insanity, and yeah. I, <laughs> right. So I'm going to choose to say... That's an example of my passion for what it is that I do. Because I don't have to do this. You that's, don't have to do this. No, that's true. That's true. I get it. I think it's after that that it gets difficult. And not that it's wrong. Like you say, it's not wrong, but it's not right. So, I mean, I think we're definitely motivated to improve themselves. I think also, though, on top of that, it's also we like to improve, at least from my standpoint, the world around myself. So, I think that's part of, at least specific to architecture, is like, I want to improve the world that I get to influence, whether that's the actual buildings or the people that I interact with or any of those things, right? I kind of, I think we have a, and most successful people do, right? Have a, a desire to improve everything that they can. Well, it also goes with that is the belief that you actually can improve the things that, yeah, that are around you because of your behavior. Like that's, that's, falls into the Tom Main cockiness. Yes and no. To me, it's really, it's that we're optimistic, even though I don't think anybody in the world would ever describe me as optimistic. I'm a very optimistic person. Most architects are on some level because they think they can make things better and they kind of want to. Now, whether or not it's the right way, <laughs> right? It's a different, if you actually are making yeah, things Yeah, right. That's a different thing, right? But like in your mind, you are, right? And again, that's totally subjective, but I think that there's a desire for that, even at the giantist ego level. I think that's where it's at. I just think that's where it gets bad. I mean, because, you know, I want to make things better, but I want to do that in a way that n helps my clients just as much as it helps me. I mean, and not ignore what my client wants. Sure, but let's pretend you're that 22-year-old architecture student, and we're saying these are the traits that we think that are intrinsic to you finding happiness and success is you have to believe that how you go about doing your business is actually better for everybody. 100%. I mean, and actually, I mean, maybe not that. Maybe that that's what you have to want it to be. I mean, maybe, and it's a slight difference of, I guess, ego, but that you want it to be, right? You want to improve things and definitely yourself. And we know that some of us need more help than others improving ourselves. I don't know what that was aimed at, but yeah. <laughs> and then the monetary thing, right? I think I think that, again, that's true. This doesn't have anything to do with us as architects being undervalued, underpaid, and all that junk. That's a whole other conversation. But I think that you know anybody that does things for success or does things that they really are passionate about, 
they're not in it for the money. They don't care. I mean, a lot of times they get monetary gains out of it. They're passionate about it, which means they really succeed and, you know, get the most out of it. And from that comes monetary gains. But I'd really doubt that that's a way that a lot of people start out, that that's their main motivation. See, I always wonder about that. You know, does the does the attorney start off with a love of the law or do they see other attorneys and go, I love that lifestyle? Right? Like they don't, you know, what they see are the trappings. Whereas what are the trappings? When I was five years old and I decided I want to be an architect, I will confess that I wanted to be one before I knew what that meant. But as I got older, I met an architect who had a Porsche 928, which was my favorite car at the time. And I was like, oh yeah, that's in my future right there. <laughs> right? There's, there's, there's always the kind of trappings that one can associate with being successful at whatever job you choose. But I will tell you, everyone's listening, that money can't... Now, we've talked about money in the past on the show. And the premise is always, yeah, everybody wants money. Everybody wants more than what they currently get. That's That has nothing to do with architecture. That's life. That's just yeah, is what it is. That's human nature. Right? Could you make decisions that would change what you do? you know, between in your waking hours that would improve your financial basis of life. Sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I, but I don't think that at least I have never met an architect who started off thinking I'm in it for the money. Uh, Ever. Yeah. Maybe. I've met, I've met some down the road. I've met some that were like, they started off working in a place. The next thing you know, they're doing a, and I don't want to get too specific because if you're clever, you can figure out who I'm talking about. <laughs> there are people that I know that work yeah. for firms and I kind of go, that's not really architecture, but the type of firm they work at, they crank out. Yeah, they're rolling it. In. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're doing, they're killing it. Yeah. But yeah. they don't, what they do doesn't look anything like what I do. And I'm not even just talking about the aesthetics of it, but my existence when I get up and what kind of problems I tackle and the engagement I get from not only my clients, but from the people I work with how that feeds my soul, all these things. Yeah, yeah. None of those come from the the money. Yeah. Now, those those people, the ones that are the handful that I'm thinking of, money is central to what it is that they're doing. And if I said, I'm taking all this money away from you, there would be nothing. Like, they would hate their existence. Yeah. Kind of thing. I guess. I, I mean, and I can see that. I think, I don't know. I, I guess, to me, there's a part of it that, I mean, you've mentioned a lawyer and they like the law, but no, they just want to have that life. Although I bet some people become lawyers because they really like to argue, which uh, pointed me in the direction of law at one time or another. The, I think like doctors or, you know, somebody like that, right? I mean, while yes, they might see the money side of it, I think there's still a an underlying need to want to help people, right? And so Sure, sure. That, Absolutely. Right. That's kind of what it is and that it's not and again it's not that money's not good um because i have a sometimes i have a hard time with that because just because you are passionate about it and love what you do doesn't mean you shouldn't make money at it which i think is sometimes a pitfall that we as architects get into about well i'm, I'm gonna i'm doing this for the good of the world or i'm improving things and so therefore if I don't make a lot of money, that's okay. I'm going to feel good about myself kind of thing. Right. So yeah, there's a fine line. In, there's a fine line in there, I think. Right. But I agree with you that your main motivation can't be for money. 
Yeah, and you know what? I actually, I'm sitting here going, well, you know, I shouldn't throw any vocation under the bus as money being their motivators because that's a wild assumption on my part. I don't know that to be true. And, and in fact, when we had the conversation about architecture salary or this architectural salaries, you know, and I went and did that deep dive on the OMB site for the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics. Yeah. The vast majority of lawyers don't, they're not killing it either. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of people that do volunteer work or they work for nonprofits mm -hmm. or they work for their civil servants, like they work in the DA's office or so. I apologize for kind of just throwing it out there as cavalierly as I had. I, I, what what I was kind of targeting as my example was a very, very narrow bandwidth, which we know exists, but should not be used to cast that light on the rest of the people that... Everybody, yeah. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. And, and I agree. And I also think that you are correct in saying that that the way I presented it, and I didn't think of this before, but now I feel shame because... When you present it with the idea that, hey, just because you like it or you enjoy it or that it's beneficial to the greater good at whole, that somehow that's not worth getting compensated. Like some reason that should be reward enough. You're compensated and feel good. Yeah. Right? And Here's karma. a bucket of feel good yeah. and karma and we're not going to pay you for it. Yeah. Agreed. I, you know, I also think that since my office has just spent the last three weeks interviewing what seems like a revolving door of possible new hires. uh -huh. So that another way of considering the skill set that someone might need if they were considering architecture as a vocation is to work through the things that I've been looking for in the candidates that have come into our office since we're trying to hire people. Yeah, no, I, kind of a reverse look in a way. <laughs> I distilled some of the qualities of what I'm looking for down to just a handful of items, right? And I don't know if we need to get into all of them to the same level we got rid of Tom Main's generated list, but... Sure. But... But I look at it and I go, part of it is I want someone who I think kind of was like me because I like how I turned out. I I would love to have a less chattier version of me in my office. <laughs> when it gets to the point so, quicker. <laughs> or doesn't have a point to make. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We don't need two of me's anywhere. But, well, that's for sure. Well, come on now. <laughs> Just not in the same place. You could have gone that route. <laughs> Two, two, two of us in the same place. There should be lots of me's everywhere, just not in the same place. Okay. I'm a creative person, and I have a strong need to actually create things. So that's a trait that I look for in the people that I'm interviewing. And sometimes I can tell that from looking at their portfolio. Sometimes I can't tell from their portfolio or the work they brought in. So I try to dig into who they are as people, what kind of hobbies they have. What are the things that they need to do. Yeah. There's got to be some level of creation, like no matter what, I mean, even if it's creative writing or poetry, it doesn't have to be drawing or it could be that they build stuff, whatever. But yeah, there's got to be some level of almost constant creative process, right? Well, I'll tell you this. I think it's really important. It's why it's on number one on my list that I generated here to, for the purpose of this podcast. You know, and whenever I think of that, I always think about this friend of mine, a guy named Scott. And I don't know if he listens to the podcast or not, but he'll know it's him as, as soon as he starts listening here. So, so this guy hey, worked Scott. in my last office. <laughs> That's right. Shout out to Scott. Super, super creative guy. And he built stuff nonstop in his spare time to the point where it was almost absurd. Like his neighborhood, they used to do these Easter parades and all that kind of stuff. And he would make these floats to go into the parade. Like he made a giant bunny that was like <laughs> 20 feet tall. Wow. Once. Yeah. Cool. You know it? 
at one time he ended up making like a chocolate bunny rabbit. You know, how like those chocolate rabbits are wrapped in that yeah. gold foil. Yeah. So, so he went out and he, and these things are huge. I mean, they're gigantic, the scale of these. And he went and got like those foil blankets, like, like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. If you've been in some kind of terrible yeah. shock inducing. Yeah, the little tiny ones in a package. You. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he took those and he, and he basically made a, a two layer kind of rabbit, chocolate rabbit cutout and filled it with helium balloons. So he had this giant chocolate rabbit foil thing on strings and, you know, a float. Wow. And he's doing stuff like that all, all the time. time. Yeah. And he's really good at it. Like he actually makes he his Halloween costume every year. Like he makes it for him and his wife and, and his kids. And they're always spectacular. Yeah. And you can just see, you can just see the creativity that this person has, that he is a maker. And I go, that's a quality that I would be really, really happy to find in anyone who came into my office to find a job. Like that tells me a lot about a person. Mm -hmm. So that's really high on my list. And that is like, for me, my website is an example of my need to express some level of creativity. For me, there was a little technology side to it as well, because I'm not very technologically minded, but I'm not a Luddite. So you <laughs> know, how can I find a different way to fill this, this creative void that i was going through in 2010 when i started my website you're not on and the dullness level at the iq i'm not on the, <laughs> i'm not on the dullness level <laughs> but then the blog site quite honestly started to get kind of boring to me and it it became a chore and if i felt like it was too important to abandon it because it still seemed to help a lot of people so it didn't go away but it just it wasn't feeding me the same way i didn't feel like i was creating it anymore and that's part of the reason why i said finally after people dinging me forever on it I said, okay, let's do a podcast because it's a totally different set of skills. There's so many different things to learn, so it's oh, more yeah. exciting. Like, for sure. I'd much rather do a podcast than write a blog post these days. Yeah, it's a whole different set of skills for sure. Number two on my list was that I like to draw. I don't think I'm particularly skilled at it, but I can do well enough to communicate my thoughts and ideas to others. And I know that there are people that have either read articles on my site where I go, well, I'm not very good at drawing, and they want to stick a big middle finger in my face and say, you're better than me. So quit, you know, like by say, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, like, I know what you oh, mean. Oh, I'm not but... very good. People have to go, Oh no, no, you're amazing. No, no, no. I, I really you. don't think I'm good. I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. Well, in our realm though, right. As architects and in definitely in our generation and older, the drawing thing is, is really a big deal. I don't even try to attempt to draw stuff very often because I feel like I'm horrible at it and would get ridiculed by my peers. But I do agree that I think at least wanting to draw stuff, even if you're not good at it, that's a, a part that to visually be able to communicate something uh, I think is important yeah. and harder to come by these days. Well, I want to say that of the 10 people we had through our office in the last two weeks, only two of them really came in with any type of focus or highlight or, hey, look, here's some hand drawings that yeah. I did. Yeah. I can look at it and tell this is something that this guy does a lot. And to me, that's a creative way to solve a problem. That's the way yeah. creative types solve problems to a certain extent because, and I'll just say it, it's faster. I can go through 10 ideas in the time it takes someone to go through two ideas on a computer. I run into it all the time, teaching, right? Now that I'm teaching at the university and kids don't want to draw because they feel like they have to be able to draw at a certain level. And I'm always trying to say, no, look, it's just a matter of, you know, it's a way to solve problems. I'm not expecting you to draw, you know, the Sistine Chapel every time you're drawing something, right? It's 
it's just the way to work through ideas and come to some sort of solution. Yeah, and from a, as an academic, as a professor, it would also help you see the way their thought process is. We say, hey, here's where they started, and you can look at the series of sketches that they've created along the way. You can say, hey, you were you were on a really good path here, and then on this sketch, something happened. And they say, well, I didn't think this was a good idea, or I ran into a hole. And you could talk them through that process and might punt them back on a path that might lead them to better success than if you just show up one day and they go, here it is, blap, finished product. Yeah. It, and you're like, uh, okay, let's talk about it. That's a really difficult thing. That's a whole nother episode. Okay. So I also tend to notice the world around me differently than my non-architecture people. And, and I'm not just talking about my ability to to avoid walking into traffic. Like, not that kind of, I see the world around me. Yeah. Uh but Run into I notice patterns and rhythms and like you know, I've talked about on the job site. I notice tile patterns in bathrooms probably more than any rational person should ever know or notice when it comes to tile patterns. But I see it all the time. And that's I'm just hardwired to notice things differently than even members of my own family. Yeah, for sure. And I think if you it's one of those things about you have a tendency to notice not only the bigger picture stuff but also like detailed things too like you look at a whole lot of different components of the world around you in a different way and it's hard to put your finger on exactly what that is but it is something right well let me ask you this so maybe this is a good way to describe it because i was out at lunch today and so we're sitting there eating and i look up and i see one of my clients for the oak grove project he's in the restaurant sitting directly across from me but like 20 feet away so I sent him a text message and I said, I hope you're enjoying your pho. And I'm watching him as the text message comes in and him like look up and start like looking around <laughs> until he sees me. Yeah. So, so I walk over and I sit down and we're just having a chat, kind of how's it going? I mean, I, I see him all the time anyway. So we were talking about various aspects of the project and he told me, he goes, I have such a different appreciation for architects now than before we started this process because... There's like 8 million different moving parts to every single thing. And you guys move from like the 30,000 foot down to the five foot, back to the 30,000, back to the five foot, back to the 30. He goes, you're going big picture, little picture, constantly back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he goes, that's not anything I would have, I would have thought that not only did someone need to do or that there would be any value in being able to do that. Yeah. And I go, that's that's what our entire jobs are made up of is let's look at the big picture and then the execution all the way down to screw placement. And then, OK, let's back back out to the 30,000 foot picture, the big idea. And then let's zoom back in on the next little small thing. Yeah. It's constantly this give and take this in and out that happens. And I don't think that if you didn't have the ability to notice the things that are around you, I don't think you could make that transition from large scale, small scale, back and forth constantly. Yeah. And I mean, I think the thing there for sure is that back and forth, big, to small, big to small is to realize that how each time you do that, it affects the other scale. What you're doing at the small scale affects the big scale and vice versa, right? That that's some correlation about observation of the world that you have to realize. I think it's a good way of putting it. Okay. The last one I have on this list, it's not necessary for a lot of the jobs that are within the architectural industry. So this isn't Mm -hmm. This is true for me, yeah. and it's true for how, how I work and how a great number of the people I know work. This one's not an absolute, but it has to do with that I think architecture is a personality-driven industry, 
and you need to have a personality. Like, and I'm tr- I was trying to think, how can I actually articulate that? Like, I think you have to be interesting. Yeah. Well, no, that because because that suggests that there's bad personalities, which which it is. But that's not my point. It's like if you're maybe maybe if I put some jargon to it and just say if you're a wallflower, there's certain tasks that you're going to be driven towards just because you're more comfortable being in the background. Yeah, doesn't mean there's not a place for you in this industry. But for the way I work and the way my entire office works, I'm in front of the clients every single day. But talking is such a huge part to what I do for me to experience any success. Because we get hired, not because because I can keep water out of a building, which I can, but we get hired to do projects because people like us, like they like who we are, mm-hmm. and that's important. So if it's it's not like, hey, I need to get my oil changed, I can go to any one of these places to get it done. That's true, but why would you choose to go to one oil changing place over another? Well, architecture is not that much different. Mm. You know, the people who hire us is because they think we're going to offer something to them, or they're going to enjoy the process, or they want to work with a specific individual more so than just going and getting a commodity from some other firm. My, uh, because I did have some issue with that when I saw it, my caveat to that would be, I think that's the smaller the firm, the more true that becomes. Agreed. Lar- I agree. Larger firms, not so much. You can be a wallflower. You can be an introvert. You can do whatever. Um, and I think you can still do that in a small firm, but it will limit your potential in a way. Your upward mobility. Yeah, exactly. But, I definitely think if you ever think you're going to own your own business, yeah, you got to have that. Or, you know, you can't be a wallflower and do that. It just doesn't work. Beating yourself down kind of path to take that way if you're not real personable and you want to actually have your own practice. Well, you're going to have a hard time getting work. Oh, yeah. It has nothing to do with your ability to actually do the work. Exactly. I'm struggling with some of that at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't hear that. Yeah, I know. I think to a certain extent, it's personality driven. I, I think your success for sure is based on your personality or your upward mobility of success, maybe, you know, because it doesn't mean you can't be an awesome architect and not be an extrovert. But if you're an introvert, it's going to be harder for people to recognize your awesomeness in a way. Correct. So that's my assumption. Is that- Yeah. You can be that wallflower and and be in the profession and kill it and ex and experience. I don't know. I don't know if you can kill it, no. but you will experience success. Well, no. Here's here's the problem. Even the really large firms, your ceiling, and thus your salary and your compensation, and like all this is tied to you eventually moving into management or leadership. Yes, every single one. I agree, and that's not specific to architecture. That's life everywhere. Yeah. Right. And, if you can't communicate and you're not good at leading a team and you're not that person who like is okay getting in front of people and, and, and making everyone go, yes, we can do it. This is exciting. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be the greatest time of my life. 60 hours a week. Woo-hoo! <laughs> if you can't, if you can't galvanize the team towards a common goal, which is going to require some personality or communication skills, you're going to be stuck being a member of the team, which is not a bad thing. Yeah. That's a great thing for some people, but it does have a limit to it. If you don't have, a little kind of a little the ability to communicate and engage and put your personality out there for other people to receive and engage with. Yeah, a little bit of charisma. And maybe I should, I, what I meant by killing it wasn't necessarily, I didn't mean success in that way. I meant like you could be an introvert and be killing it at, as an architect, like doing what you do, but that doesn't mean that that will automatically translate into a successful career. 
that's really what I was trying to get at, right? Like you could be doing some really awesome designs and detailing and like your projects are awesome, but without a personality that becomes more difficult to cultivate. I agree. And that actually segues nicely into kind of the wrapping up the conversation that I think it takes a certain type of brain to practice architecture, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone can't find a place, which is what we just got through talking about. And while most people don't go into architecture school thinking that they are going to be anything other than the world's next great designer, the truth of the matter is that it takes a small army of people of all sorts and different roles to take on the projects that are being built these days. Yeah, for sure. And the design side of practicing architecture seems to benefit from someone who thinks radially rather than in a linear manner. Architectural design is about finding balance between many things, some that are at complete odds with one another. And the skill in being a terrific designer lies in that person or your ability to effectively set priorities that can push and pull on one another until there's some sort of equilibrium in that result, which means that all variables are in play at the same time. And for those people who solve one problem at a time and then move on to the next one, you will experience some frustration in this field, I think. Yeah. Unless you your job is workflow project manager. Yeah, true. So at the same time, to that same point, I think if you are a linear thinker, that works well for people who will control flow of information, they oversee processes, or they, they organize and maintain procedures, things that, let's be honest, architectural processes desperately need. I'm not saying that a person can't be both a radial and a linear thinker, but I do think that I could successfully argue that they will be better suited and experience different types of successes if you are one type of thinker over another type of thinker. And the trick is for, as we've listed all these kind of characteristics and the skill set that I think that would make or lend itself to you experiencing joy and happy and satisfaction, all these kind of great things within the field of architecture, I think you understanding how your brain works or how you solve problems or the it's going to help you understand what path you're going to go on before you've actually walked that path. Yeah. And which, which sort of direction to take that will hopefully help you find some happiness and success in the whole field. Right. Because again, there's so many different aspects that you can go down and find in architecture or any, any profession for that matter, but architecture for sure. There's a lot of different, paths that take all these kinds of people that we've been talking about yeah you don't have to it's not design or bust yeah for sure i mean at all well just from a statistic standpoint the vast majority of architects are not designers exactly but honestly yeah no there's a role that anybody can carve out for themselves within this field but your ability to experience success or find that joy really has to do with you understanding what your skill set is or how your brain works in such a way that will anticipate how your development or how your growth is going to come about So if you think you're the world's greatest designer and you're a linear thinker and you're really suited more towards workflow processes, you're going to experience some level of disappointment or you're going to start a job and quit because they're not letting you do what you want to do and you'll start a new job and then they'll put you into what you're good at as opposed to what you want to do. And you'll go through this cycle for a long time and you'll either become disenfranchised or you'll end up carving yourself out such a specific niche. Because it's a byproduct of you trying to say, I have to find happiness with what I'm doing. No one has conversations about money at that point. They're all like, I don't want to be miserable when I go to work every day. Yeah, for sure. And that misery only gets dealt with when you make peace with what you're good at versus what you want to do. Yeah. 
with your days. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain level of maturity, I think, that comes with that, too, is being able to own sort of what you are and what your strengths and weaknesses are. Well, it circles back to the idea that, you know, what was the thing that was on the list? Let me pull it out here. They had, you know, they must take their work seriously and consistently perform on the highest level. That really comes from you doing what you're good at yeah. and you enjoying it to such a point that you then move on to the other one, which is consistency in your delivery and your product. Yeah. You have to accept the things that you're good at so you can get down to the business of getting better at it. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yep. Okay. I'm going to call that a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 21, Making an Architect. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 30 seconds and head on over to iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast so you can get fresh new episodes automatically downloaded to your podcast player of choice. And while you're there, but only if you're feeling generous, please leave us some feedback as we'd really like to hear your thoughts on the show, topics we might be able to cover, or just general feedback. It's important to us. And while you're there, if you'd be so kind as to drop us a five-star Pritzker Prize rating. If iTunes isn't your player of choice, we're also available on Google Play, TunedIn, Android Stitcher, Spotify, and a bunch of others. They're all free, and all you have to do is hit the subscribe button on your podcast listening app of choice. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. Also, be sure to stick around until the very end, and we'll possibly reward you with our version of a blooper reel. Thanks so much for tuning in. Cheers. Take it easy, everybody. Hang on. I'm trying to get situated because I got all this. I have to hold everything. You got to, like, take your pants off. <laughs> Something like that. That's how. That's the best podcasts are recorded pantsless, I've discovered. Pantless? I'm, I'm okay with that. I think that's that'd be all right. <laughs> hey, man. Take that. <laughs> Yeah, let's keep that up. For once, I'm not the one making all the weird noises. Hold on. God, I really blew that. Let's start over. <laughs> At the very beginning? I'm struggling a little bit, yeah. They they, they listen to us to be entertained by the idiots. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I like that. I might, I might have to cut that out. Okay, we'll leave it at that. And then offline, I'll, I'll tell you why you're still wrong. <laughs> That's fine. I'll still argue with you because, you know. That's what we do. Yeah. So I'm in my closet, yeah. and if it weren't for what I'm hoping is my seasonal allergies, I'm thinking, I've been in this hour for an hour and a half. It's got to smell like bad breath in here by now. <laughs>